Well, we're getting down to the wire. Uh, We're turning the page today to James chapter 5. And uh, since our book only has five chapters, that means we're getting close to the end. And uh, so please uh, turn in your Bible with me to James chapter 5. Let me start the PowerPoint here and uh, we'll get going. So uh, again, just an update, Uh, Pastor Terry will be teaching uh, systematic theology this summer. Not sure if it's going to be Sunday morning or during the week, probably during the week. Uh, Don will continue to uh, teach through the Psalms as you're thinking about the summer semester and adult education, uh, the Psalms class. Again, you can jump into that anytime. The Psalms are mostly self-contained. And then um, what I am going to do in terms of teaching will depend a bit on when Terry does his class. So again, more news at 10. We were hoping to have that nailed down today, but uh, everything's TBA right now. So um, so hang in there, but know that uh, those opportunities are coming uh, starting next month. Uh, our, our summer semester will start in the month of May. Uh, David Gibson will be finishing his intro to the Bible class the first week in May. And so really that second Sunday in May will be when our summer semester begins. So, Okay, with that in mind, uh, where have we been? We've been talking about real faith in difficult times. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book of James. Why are we talking about difficult times in the book of James? Because we all have them, right? And that reflects what about our original audience? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, we have the 12 tribes, meaning the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jewish Christians, representative of the 12 tribes, that have had to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. So they're, they're running and, and having to flee uh, to more peaceful settings. Okay, and Sally's right. I mean, we, we, we learn from James not because our circumstances are identical, but because we have difficulties as well. We have challenges as well, and so we can learn from some of that. What, what's, what do we mean by real faith? Why is it real faith? That's right. Exactly. Real faith is not just talk. It's backed up by action and fruit. And and really, that's what James has in mind. And again, I, I feel like I say this every week, but it's so important that we keep it in context. This is a brand new church. Like Christianity is brand new. There's no New Testament. There's no uh, Grace to You website where you can download, you know, 40 years of MacArthur sermons. You know, there's no John Piper books. There's no commentaries. There's no blog articles. They literally have nothing to help them to know what is this new faith? What is this Christianity? All they've heard in many cases is the gospel message. Uh, Maybe they heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so, something that the apostles had taught. So James is writing this letter to the early church to help them to know what is real Christianity. This is the first New Testament letter that was written, probably written in the mid-40s of the first century. And uh, so, again, I I call it the, you know, my kid is going off to college syndrome. You know, it's like, and another thing, and one more thing. And, oh, by the way, don't forget, and that's what James is doing. In fact, we're going to look at four different points that he makes today in just a few verses. And he's coming to the close of his letter. He's like, oh, yeah, there's one more thing, and and don't forget this. And and, and that's what it is. He, He wants to pack uh, a wealth of instruction in a short letter uh, to help this new church to know how to thrive in their walk with God. So we've looked at some of these, uh, and again, you probably know these by heart right now. James comes at us describing 
uh, true Christianity, and he does it in part by giving us uh, a series of tests or questions. Uh, the first one we saw is how do you respond to challenges, that how we react to challenges, trials, difficulties, uh, needing wisdom, to, uh, say something about our faith and the reality of our faith. Uh, does our faith lead to godly action? Uh, the spiritual Nike says what? Just live it, right? Just live it. Uh, are your words under control? There's a whole chapter just talking about the importance of, of how we speak and what that says about our heart and, and keeping our words under control. We talked about worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. I, um, uh, pre- some of you, many of you have asked this morning. I appreciate you praying for me. I was in Houston uh, Friday night and, and through most of yesterday uh, teaching a seminar at a church on the Bible and mental health. And uh, a big part of that is trying to help Christians to see that much of what the, the secular culture thinks about in terms of mental health is actually a worldview. It's a way of thinking about life and people and their problems. And sometimes when we go to the Bible and we look about what the Bible says about life and people and their problems, that those two worldviews collide. And and my premise in my seminar was that the the Bible is sufficient to address the challenges of mental health. And one of the main ways that it does that is it tells us about God, it tells us about people, it tells us about their problems, it tells us about why people do what they do, and then most importantly, it tells us about the solution that's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel. But that's world, those are world, worldviews colliding. And that's what James is talking about here. When you have secular wisdom and godly wisdom and those are colliding, what are you going to listen to? And, of course, a true Christian is someone who's listening to biblical wisdom and turning away from worldly wisdom. Remember we talked about conflicts and uh, what, what's the source of our quarrels and conflicts, so those pleasures, right? We, we're in love with getting our way. We love the feeling we get. We get what we want. And, uh, and that gets us into trouble with people when we demand our way at the expense of others. We looked last time about uh, really two questions. Are you a critical person? We talked about judging, right and wrong judging. And then we also looked at how pride sometimes drives our planning when we, we don't consider if the Lord wills, right? And so we always want to, we always want to hold our plans with an open hand, as it were, uh, knowing that God may redirect our steps. So that brings us to chapter 5. So let's, uh, let's jump right in here. Chapter 5, verse 1. James, uh, he's not into fluffy introductions. Have you noticed this? Uh, it's just like, um, come now, you rich, weep and howl. We're like, oh, calm down. <laughs> you know, he's just, he's just right at it again, right? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and had led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. 
So this next question that we read in this section, I think, comes down to this. I think this is the question that James is asking here. Do we envy the rich? Do we envy the rich? And you say, where's envy? I'll I'll explain it here in a moment. First of all, um, we need to ask the question, who is James talking to here? So so what do you think? um, Who is he talking about? In, in this section, we know he's talking to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. But when he says, come you rich, who does he have in mind? What, what do you think? Could be the Pharisees. Any other ideas? Wealthy people. Could be wealthy people in the church. Or wealthy people outside of the church, okay? That there's some hints regarding their spiritual status. Yes? Okay. They could be professing to be believers, okay? Well, I mean, I mean, just, just look back at the text here. Tell me what you think. Um, these are people that are taking advantage of their workers. Uh, James is saying judgment is coming. Um, they're condemning. Uh, they're putting to death the righteous man, and yet those righteous people don't resist you. Do we have good evidence that these these folks are regenerate based on the, the real short thumbnail that James gives us? Probably not. Probably not. So, so you guys could be right in saying that they could be like professing believers. They could be in the church, but most likely based on the description, these are unbelievers. Okay? And it's interesting. There's, there's some historic background here that, that, unless you've done some reading, you, you probably aren't aware of. In, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a, a class of landowners. And these landowners were very wealthy. Um, these were the stockpilers of the day. They had servants. They had slaves on the property. And they just kind of had a reputation of taking advantage of other people in order to bolster their wealth. And that's probably who James has in mind here. There's good historical evidence based on the time and season that James is writing that, that that's likely who he's talking about here. Can't be sure, but, but that's, that's probably it. And, and you say, okay, so why would James be talking to the early church about pagan landowners? And again, we can't be sure... But um, I'm just going to ask you this. As believers, do you ever find yourself envying or coveting the lifestyles, the wealth, the cars, the boats, the houses, the comforts of rich unbelievers? Ever struggle with that? And if the answer is, yeah, maybe, or probably, or yes, definitely, then that's probably what James has in mind here. He's telling us about this because remember what's happened. These brand new Christians have left. They've left the, the, the mainstay community of Christianity. So they're scattered. So they're living in the Greco-Roman world. They're living next door to these landowners. And James is saying, I know what you're thinking. You had to leave home. You had to leave your family. You had to leave your job. You probably had to leave a lot of your possessions, right? So so these 12 tribes dispersed abroad are probably poorer Christians. 
at least until they could get established again. And, and, and just like you and me, I bet they're looking around going, oh, man, look at that T-bone steak they're enjoying. You know, look at all the cars in the garage. Look at that house. Right? And, and they're, they're tempted to envy the rich. And I think that's why James introduces us to this, that he could have other reasons. But nonetheless, there's a warning here that James wants us to heed. Okay, so he's probably talking about this, this class of Greco-Roman landowners that, um, and, and you'll catch it as he gives the description. These are people that have added to their wealth by taking advantage of other people. And uh, we'll see this in the text here, okay? So let, let's look at the description. First of all, these are folks who selfishly hoard their wealth. Look at verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Listen to this. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. What's he getting at there? What do you, what do you think he's, he's talking about? Yeah, it's all going to pass soon because what's going to happen? They're going to die. Jesus is going to return, right? The end of the age. And, and they're using their best years to stockpile stuff. Now, I don't know about you, but that's starting to get a little personal, isn't it? That's starting to get a per- I mean, I, I mean, Americans are the quintessential stockpilers of the world, aren't we? You know, we have stuff in our attic, we have stuff in our house, we have stuff in our garage. And then when we run out of places for stuff, we get a storage unit or we build a storage shed and we get stuff for, we build stuff for our stuff. And again, um, you know, the Bible doesn't condemn owning things. We know that, right? The Bible's not saying, you know, you can't have a car or a house or even a nice car or a nice house. But, but here, here's the point. What are we expending our energies and finances on in the last days leading up to our glory? Right? What are we investing in? And remember, James, the half-brother of Jesus, probably heard a lot of what Jesus had to say in his life and ministry. And you'll remember back in Matthew chapter 6, we, we think of the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels paralleling the book of James. Remember, we've talked about that before. There's a lot of parallels there. In Matthew chapter 6, what did Jesus say about storing up treasures on earth? Do you remember something about that? What do you, what do you say? Were moth and rust destroyed? It sounds like the same language as James, right? And maybe that's where James got it. Maybe he got it from Jesus. But Jesus is more explicit. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? Where? In heaven. What's that? Like a, like a, does Ford make a heaven edition F-150? Is that what he means by that? Or is it, what are we talking, what are we talking about? Heavenly treasure. What does that mean? In investing internal things and what does that amount to? Sharing the gospel, people, right? Things that are going to invest in the spiritual betterment and the spiritual lives of other people. And again, the Bible's not condemning having nice things. What it's saying is, where's your focus? Where are you expending your energy? We should be hoarding spiritual treasure, right? 
We should be stockpiling ministry and opportunities and people. That's what we need to be investing in. But these folks are selfishly hoarding wealth. Secondly, they defraud their workers. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. What's he saying? He's saying these landowners have people that work for them. They mow their fields. And yet, what do the landowners do? Did you get it? They don't pay them, right? They're, they're not paying them their wages. They're taking advantage of them. Well, well what, are these, what are these servants going to do? They can quit, and then they're going to starve, right? They rely on that landowner for, for food and for shelter and whatnot. They don't have a better option. So, so what's the result? They put up with being taken advantage of. And, and James is here saying they're defrauding their workers. They're taking advantage of, of people. And again, you know, I, this can be temptation, can't it? We, we can get so focused on what we want. We can get so focused on, you know, a deal or, or something like that, that, that we can pursue our own pleasure, our own wealth, our own betterment at the expense of other people. And, and James is warning us, uh, how wrong that is and, and how bad that is. We need to turn away from that. Notice also they live in a self-indulgent lifestyle. Again, looking at verse 5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. We think of what Jesus said to the man who said he was going to tear down his barns to build bigger ones. Do you remember what Jesus said? The guy's just hoarding and building up and storing up and what did Jesus say? You fool. Tonight, your life will be required of you. And again, the, the, the condemnation is not you can't own nice things. The condemnation is if your whole focus of life is material, is wealth, is stuff, you don't know when Jesus is coming back. You don't know when your life is coming to an end and you look back and you, you've wait, you, you don't want to do this. You, you don't, you do not want to be on your deathbed and look back and say, I've got this house and this car and this retirement savings and, and this stuff and I enjoyed this vacation and look back and say, but I wasted my life for Christ. None of us want to do that. And the time to have that clarity is not moments before your death. The time to have that clarity is now so we can be changing our day planners and changing our checkbooks and changing our priorities so that we're storing up things that last eternally. Um, and again, I, we, we, are, we are comfortable. We are comfortable people. And um, I don't think... God blesses us with comfort so that we can hoard it. I think in our church, in America, in the States, I think God blesses us with comfort and riches and technology so that we can go bless other people in Jesus' name and for gospel purposes. And I don't know about you, I, that's what I want my life to be about. I want to waste my life. So James is saying, take caution. 
to avoid this example. It's so easy to get caught up in this sort of thing. And they oppress the righteous. Last verse there, look at what it says, verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. So these folks were getting to the point where maybe that refers to the fact that they were putting to death their slaves, their their servants. Uh, Maybe it just meant that they had enough power and wealth that they were able to uh, suppress enemies or... Uh, something along those lines. We don't really know who the righteous man is there, the righteous, but uh, but nonetheless, they're they're oppressing and even killing those that are standing up for what is right. Yes. Yeah, it's it's talking about injustice. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well said. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you guys heard that. He, he was just saying that. There's a parallel here to many of the prophets like Amos and Isaiah that, that called out the injustices of the leadership and the people. And so James' audience may have been familiar with those prophets and just say, hey, remember what happened to them, right? So take caution because we see the same sort of um, behaviors in these, in these landowners here. So, Okay, so we, we, we want to avoid <laughs> envying the rich and especially a lifestyle that pursues our own benefit at the expense of others. Um, okay, that leads us to our second question here. We've got to keep moving because James is, is fast hitting here. And that's in our next couple verses. And we read this, are you patient for the Lord's return? Now, this is on the heels of what Carl has just said, thinking about people taking advantage of their people, um, putting to death the righteous, rampant injustice. I know this is going to hit home with you because it hit home with me. Are we being patient about the timing of the Lord's return? So let's look at the text here. Chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. I don't know if you've felt like this like I have, but as things escalate in our world and in our country, uh, whether it's political, whether it's culture wars, whether it's race relations, whether it's uh, geopolitical realities. We, we, we look at the, the degradation of marriage and family, a redefinition of gender, of, of killing of babies, of lawlessness. I, I was listening to a, a, a sermon um, going down to Houston the other day, and, and um, did you just... Um, how rampant lawlessness is today. Just absolutely no respect for, you know, the law, but just, just any law. You just, just like, those are the rules and I'm supposed to follow them. I mean, 
that there was a generation not too long ago that honored the law. Not everybody, but as a total, a generation that says that that's something we should do. That that's a good thing to do. And now lawlessness seems to be almost more common than a respect for the law. Um, it's a different generation. And those of you that have grandkids, great-grandkids, we, we think when they're our age, what is it going to be like, right? And I think in the midst of all that, sometimes we, we cry out in, in frustration or maybe just genuine curiosity, Lord, when are you going to hit the stop button? When does Jesus say, enough? We know that, that God is righteously angered by the injustice of the world, by the lawlessness of the world, by the rejection of his laws, his, his character, of his person. And we know that he grieves people that hear the gospel and reject it over and over and over again. And in the midst of all that, again, maybe like me, you're just like, when does this end? We think of the psalmist, right? How long, O Lord? So here's the question. Are you being patient about the timing of the Lord's return? I know I've got some work to do here. Look at this. He says, be patient twice. <laughs> that tells us we probably should pay attention to that. Be patient, brethren, verse 7, verse 8. You too be patient. And then he, mes- he mentions patience a third time in the middle, talking about the farmer waiting for produce. How many of you do farming? Okay. How many of you do gardening? Okay. Talk to me here. Is this true? Right? You, they're just... Weeks, months, you just have to be patient and do what you know is right and hope that when, when that, that sprouting season comes that something emerges from the ground or fruit, or fruit comes off of the tree or, you know, whatever it is you're, you're farming, right? You have to be patient. Um, and James, uh, talking to a society that would have understood farming and, and agriculture much better even than we do, says you gotta be patient. You gotta, you gotta wait for that. Remember what, what uh, Peter says? In, in, in Peter's uh, letter, he talks about um, don't think of God's timing like you and I think of timing. That's, the, that's where we get the verse, you know, the day of the Lord is like a thousand years. Remember that? And, and what he's saying is we're looking at our watch going, where, where's Jesus? You know, look at, look at the mess. Look, look at the degradation. Look at what's going on in society. Look at families. Look at our country. Come on, come back and fix it, please. And you know, there's part of that that's godly, right? We, we long for the restoration of this world. We, we long for, uh, uh, the Lord's return and, and, uh, an ending of, of the suffering and the sin that we face every day. And there's, there's a godly part of that. But that godly desire can turn into an ungodly impatience. And we need to remember that God has a timetable and he's going to act exactly when he needs to act. Now, let me ask you this. Um, when you're impatient, 
Tell me about the decisions you make when you're impatient. Usually bad, right? Tell me about your mood when you're impatient. Usually lousy and bad, right? You see the theme here, right? Um, and that's, that's the point here, guys. The point is not we, we shouldn't long for Jesus' return. We, we shouldn't long for the restoration of all things. We shouldn't long for justice to reign. Those are good things. The point is, if we're not patient about that and we come impatient, we start making bad decisions. We start exemplifying ungodly behavior. We, we start being a bit more reckless in our mission. And we can't do that. So he says, be patient, be careful. Uh, what provokes impatience? We, we've talked about some of those things. What provokes your impatience about the return of the Lord? Anything in particular? Not getting what you want? Frustration? Yeah. What do you think James' audience might have been provoked to be impatient about? Persecution. Persecution. Fairness. Fairness. That's not right. That's not fair. Yeah. I mean, you you can see this. I mean, we look at injustice in our society and and we're, we're disturbed by that. Think of what's going on in the first century. Jesus says, this is my plan. It's called the church. You ready, set, go. And now we've got persecution. We've got people leaving their homes, leaving their country, leaving their cities. This is the plan, Lord, really? So there's lots of things that provoke impatience, and we need to be, we need to be mindful of those things. Look at what he says. If, if, you know, be patient, you say, that's easier said than done. How do you do that? You strengthen your heart. Do you notice that there? He says, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. What does that mean? I mean, we, we could we could make a guess at that, but when we talk about strengthening our heart, spiritually speaking, what are we talking about? We're talking about staying in the Word of God, right? Uh, being in prayer, being in fellowship with one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, corporate worship, evangelism. We, we, we strengthen our hearts as we commune with God, and as we spend that time with God, we are energized to display patience in the midst of very difficult circumstances. So now is the day to to strengthen our hearts and all of that. Okay? Again, got to keep going. Number three. Are your seatbelts fastened? Are your tray tables in their upright and locked position? Are you a complainer? Okay, let's go on to the next point now. Um, we'll just, that's too personal. Look at verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Um, when you're impatient, remember that was the previous verse, is complaining ever a temptation? It's like James has been hanging out in our living rooms, hasn't he, right? He's been eavesdropping on our lives here. Uh, complaining. Uh, <laughs> do not complain, brethren. Now notice this. He's not saying 
Do not complain about the injustice out there. Do not complain about rampant unfairness out there. What does he say? Don't complain where? You're not looking at your Bible. Look at your Bible. Your Bible answers it. Do not complain where? With with each other, with one another. So so watch this. We, We can get frustrated about what's going on outside, get impatient, and then what happens? We start... We start complaining against one another. Oh, I can't believe that. You know, and we start griping about one another. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's say that we weren't a church. Let's say we were a football team. Okay, we're a, they're the Grace Bible Church football team. And um, let's say Ernie's our quarterback. He's a pretty good quarterback. And um, so, so Ernie gets out there and, and he calls the huddle on the offense and uh, he calls the play. And as he's breaking the huddle, the center says to one of the blockers, I just think you're an idiot. You can't do anything right. What are you talking about? Well, you're always letting that guy by. Come on, come on, block, block, block our quarterback. You know, don't let him into our quarterback. I'm trying my best. Why don't you just hike the ball? You, you threw it over his head the last three times. Okay. How's the football game going to go? You're doomed. You're going to lose. And you're going to lose not necessarily because you're not the better team. You're going to lose because you're complaining and you're fighting inside the church. Now, now, Satan's a pretty smart guy. And he knows that the only hope for this world is the gospel that you and I have been entrusted with. Right? That's the hope for the world. And he knows that the church is God's team to get that message out. So there may be some, you know, outside things, you know, some persecution, you know, some pressure in your job, you know, because you're trying to be a Christian, your boss doesn't like that. You know, there's stuff like that. But, But you know one of his favorite strategies? Let's get the team arguing amongst themselves. Let's, let's get the team complaining and, and fighting amongst one another because if they're fighting amongst one another, they're not going to be faithful and effective in their mission, are they? And James is talking to the first generation of the church and he says, look guys, I know there's some bad things happening out there. I know it's frustrating. I know it's tempting to be impatient. But listen to me, you cannot grumble and complain about that toward one another why? Because you're going you're gonna to sacrifice your mission, your effectiveness. Do, do you see this? It's about moving the ball down the field, and we don't move the ball, the ball down the field if we're fighting amongst one another. That, that, that's why, and I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding on you a little bit here, but um, when someone else offends you in the church, when someone else sins against you in the church, and you know what? We're going to do that because we're sinners, right? There's no perfect people. There's no like super Christians. We're just, we're just regular people pursuing Christ. We have a great Savior, right? We're going to offend each other, right? We're, we're, we're going to irritate one each other. We're, we're going to be forgetful. We're, we're going we're gonna to do things that strain relationships with one another. It's, gonna, it's already happened, right? You've had those experiences. Do you know why it's worth the effort and the discomfort of going to that person and trying to work it out? 
Do you know why it's worth the energy to expend to go and humble yourself and say, I'm so sorry I did that. Will you please forgive me? You're my brother. You're my sister. Do you know why that's so important? Because if we don't do that, we end up divided. We end up factious. We end up, you know, I'm over here and you're over there. And the team suffers. And if the team is not on the same page, the mission fails. And if the mission fails, we have lost people that don't hear the gospel. So that's what James is trying to help us to see. My little complaining, well, everybody complains, right? My little complaining, you ready? Has potential gospel implications. And that's why we need to not do it. And furthermore, you know what? Being a complaining Christian, being a grumbler for Jesus is just a horrible witness. Who wants to get on that team when we're griping and complaining and arguing and we're arguing about the preacher, we're arguing about the, that small group leader, we're arguing about this, right? Why would I want to be a part of that? Joe Unbeliever says, right? So let's not do that. Let's not grumble. Let's not complain. It's against one another, right? It's within the body of Christ. And let's do that so that we will not be judged. So, so here's the other thing. Um, parents, grandparents, talk to me here. Uh, you've got your kids and they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, right? And you ever, you ever walk like into the doorway and they're doing something they shouldn't be doing in their room and their backs to you. And so they don't know that you're there like listening and witnessing and, and, and all of a sudden they turn around. It's like, Oh, Oh, I love you, brother. Right. You know, they try to turn around. Um, that's what James is saying here. He says, don't complain, don't grumble, get on the same page, don't don't sacrifice the mission. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. You know, we want to get our hearts right, and and, and one of the ways that, that we find sobriety when we're living in sin, whether it's complaining or grumbling or something else, is to remember... That as I'm grumbling and complaining to my, sma- my spouse or my kids or a co-worker, Jesus himself is standing at the door overhearing the conversation. And we don't want to on- dishonor him, do we? We want to honor the judge. We, we, we want to know in the last days, we want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We don't want to hear bad move, Mr. Christian complainer. Okay? The judge is standing right at the door. Again, James might be thinking of Matthew 24 where Jesus uses similar language about the, the coming, the return of the Lord coming. It's right at the door, right? It, it's, it's eminent. All right, got to keep going. Number three, do you patiently endure suffering? Look at this. Look at verses 10 and 11. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That This underscores uh, Carl's point a moment ago that, that maybe James had the prophets in mind. Uh, if he didn't a few verses ago, he certainly does now. Um, he says, I want you to think about the patience here now of the prophets, right? 
Um, what does he say there? What do you know about the prophets? When you think about patience and the prophets, what comes to mind? Standing for truth and nobody wants to hear it. Perseverance. Perseverance. Remember Isaiah? Remember God's commission to Isaiah? He sees that great vision of, of God in the temple. And he says, I want you to go and preach to the people. And I just want you to know they're not going to listen to you. Okay, you got that? Great, go do it. <laughs> Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Four decades of ministry and no converts. Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel. Um, these are these are men who poured out their life. God renamed their children. <laughs> I mean, their, they, they, their, their families were affected. Their whole lives. Jeremiah's walking into Jerusalem to preach. And there's kids on the street who have made up songs and they're singing songs that mock the prophet of God. That was what his daily commute was like every day. And they endured, didn't they? They were patient. They were faithful. Guys, we, we need heroes like that, don't we? We're not going through anything like that. Not, nothing remotely that extreme. Difficulties today? Absolutely. Where do we look? We turn to a, a chapter like Hebrews 11 and we read about faithful men and women who endured by continuing to trust God and follow what He commands. So we keep praying, don't we? We keep evangelizing. We strive for unity. We put away complaining. And, and we, we further the ball down the field. But the gospel football needs to keep going down the field in terms of evangelism and, and Christian ministry. <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Isn't that true? Yeah. Yes, so good. Yeah, so where are you dwelling? That, that's a really good question. And I think we see these prophets in their life that, uh, you know, they, they could not have survived if they weren't dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, right? Very good point. Okay, so we know about the prophets. Uh, th- these were not, you know, the, the, the going on vacation for Jesus kind of thing. These are people that endured hardship and difficulty. What do the prophets have in common with James' audience? What do you think? Okay, they had the mission of revealing God. Persecution. What's that? Ridicule. Mm-hmm. And so James is saying, remember those prophets? Remember what they went through? Be reminded, and it says here, um, use them as an example, right? The suf- of, uh, an example of what? Both suffering and patience. The prophets are an example of how to suffer well, right? How to suffer in a godly way. And they're an example of patience, right? And they spoke the name of the Lord. And he says there, we count those blessed who endured. And, and then he brings up one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament, Mr. Job. 
And there, he, there he is there. We don't know if that's what he looked like. but um, Job loses his whole family, his whole livelihood in one day. And then he is afflicted with an illness that his wife and everybody around him is convinced is going to take his life. And he's so sick and so contagious that he leaves his luxurious property and he resides on the local city trash heap. And he falls into a deep depression. He has bouts of anger against God. He wrestles with big questions about suffering. Why is God letting this happen? How can possibly God have a purpose? I think God is being unjust in my suffering even. And yet, in the midst of all those questions and all those difficulties, he endures, doesn't he? And at the end of the book, God reveals himself to Job, which was not something that happened regularly in those days even, and reminded him, of who God really is, right? For who he really is. And Job repented of his accusations against God and his impatience. And his much of his livelihood was restored. And we look at that and we go, that's pretty extreme. That's to lose all ten of your kids in one day and your retirement savings and your property and your stuff. God left you with a wife that was convinced that her husband was going to die and she was going to probably be left with a life of prostitution as a the only option to sustain herself. She says, just curse God and die. Just get it over with. And we look at that and we go, you know what? What do we learn from the book of Job? We say, you know, Job, yes, my superhero. No, 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 that's, that, you miss the point. Well, look back at the text. Uh, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Who is the hero in the book of Job? Is it Job? Well, yeah, we, we can find commendable things. But look at what it says. The outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. It was the mercy of God that caused Job to endure. That's what he's saying. It was the blessing of God on his life that that bolstered his faith and kept him from committing suicide. That's what he's saying. That it's God's mercy and God's compassion. And and this is the point, guys. Paul's going to say this in 2 Corinthians. We read it. uh, we, We read it in Psalm 119, and it is this. You will see the extent of God's compassion and mercy most clearly in your suffering and in your difficulty. So look for that. Look to be awed and wowed by the depth of God's mercy and compassion as He bolsters you up through difficulties so that you and I can be faithful in the mission that God calls us to have. That's the outcome, right? The Lord is full of compassion and is full of mercy. Let's pray.
Uh, Father, we thank you for these reminders. Um, Make us faithful to heed what we've heard today. Uh, Lord, help us to work hard by your grace, knowing your mercy and compassion, to be faithful to our mission and uh, to walk with you in these days that you might further your kingdom and your gospel purposes through us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.